sound familiar? If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, it was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. Sometimes the breastfeeding information you receive from friends and find on the internet can clash with what your pediatrician recommends. How can you discuss these discrepancies with your pediatrician and get on the same page? Today, I'm thrilled to welcome a new expert to the show. Dr. Jenny Thomas is a pediatrician and breastfeeding medicine specialist at Lakeshore Medical Clinic in Franklin, Wisconsin, and is a clinical assistant professor of community and family medicine and pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She is also an international board certified lactation consultant. Today we are discussing talking with your pediatrician about breastfeeding. This is The Boob Group, episode 103. Breast milk, it does a baby good. Silly daddy, boobs are for babies. I make milk, what's your superpower? If my breastfeeding offends you, put a blanket over your head. Dairy diva, don't be lactose intolerant. Nursing nature's own breast enhancement. Meals on heels. Whoever said there's no use crying over spilled milk, never had to pump. Breast milk, All udders are inferior. Whatever your point of view, we're here to support your breastfeeding goals. We're the Boob Group, because mothers know breast. Welcome to the Boob Group, broadcasting from the Birth Education Center of San Diego. The Boob Group is your weekly online on-the-go support group for all things related to breastfeeding. I'm your host, Robin Kaplan. I'm also an international board-certified lactation consultant and owner of the San Diego Breastfeeding Center. Have you checked out our Facebook page recently? If not, head on over and join in on the conversation that happens there daily. Feel free to post questions on our wall, and we will try to answer them on an upcoming episode. And best of all, help us share all of our great content by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. So today we have three lovely panelists in the studio. Ladies, will you please introduce yourselves? So I'm Samantha. I'm 22. I'm a barista. And I happen to be a producer on our sister show, Preggy Pals. I have one 18-month-old daughter, Olivia, that I am still nursing. And she's quite the pistol. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Melissa Lang Lytle. I'm 43 years old. I'm a birth doula and um, birth worker advocate. I have three children. I have Milo with me, and he's nine weeks, ten weeks and unhappy at this second. Um, and I have Benjamin, age five, and Joseph, age three and a half. All right. And I'm Shannon Benecki. I'm 32. Um, I'm a kindergarten teacher. I have one daughter, Vivian. She is 10 months old, and we are still nursing. Awesome. All right. And MJ is our producer. So MJ, you want to talk really briefly about our virtual panelist program? Please? Yes, definitely. Um, the VP program has uh, really come a long way. And it's it's a really cool way for um, you out there to join the conversation and be a part of the show if you can't be in the studio with us, because we post the same questions that our in-studio panelists are answering. So you can share your experience and your opinions or tips and just engaging and supporting other moms. It's nice to know that you're not alone. Um, it's a sneak 
preview of our show before it releases. Um, and we post tips and info as we record. And um, you're really just supporting each other. So check out theboobgroup.com under the community tab for more info on the VP program and possible perks for participation. All right. Thanks, MJ. You're welcome. <coughs> Sounds familiar. <coughs> If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. It was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. So here's a question from one of our listeners. This is from Sarah, and she posted this on Facebook. The majority of moms I know either formula feed or supplement with formula because they say they don't produce enough. Is this really true, or are they most likely mistaken? I thought milk just keeps forming when the baby is on the boob. Hi, Boob Group listeners. This is Veronica Tingvon, International Board Certified Lactation Consultant, owner of the Original Comfort Food in San Diego, California. Sarah. I love, love, love this question from you because it is such a loaded question. (laughs) Um, So here's kind of my dial-down version of an answer. Um, A lot of moms do supplement unnecessarily, um, and it's not so much because they're not producing enough. It's a perception of not producing enough because they don't know how to read their baby's cues or they don't trust in the ability of their breasts to make the milk. The funny thing is, and really it's not that funny, but I guess the ironic thing is, is that eventually that extra supplementation will actually lead to the demise of their milk supply. So it will diminish and diminish and diminish the more interruptions that there are for that supplementation and not uh, stimulating at the same time. So instead of using formula, trying to pump and breastfeed and do things like that to help um, help make that, that supply go up a little bit more. Um, so I, I, I kind of find it funny that you should ask this because there was just a study that came out pretty recently um, and I was just reading it the other day about the low milk supply or supply ec- epidemic in the United States. Mothers in other, other countries who have better support and better knowledge of breastfeeding don't have this perception. Um, over here in the United States, this perception is so high because even our medical staff, our pediatricians, our OBGYNs really aren't well equipped to answer the questions and so it's kind of a blame game. Um, if the baby's lost too much weight, oh, you don't have enough milk. If the baby's too jaundiced, it's because you don't have enough milk. And so they assign this blame, and moms take it from there because of their insecurity and their desperation for wanting to be 
you know, the, the provider and wanting their baby to be okay. And if their baby's not quote unquote okay, then they take it upon themselves to do something to make them better. And it's really not the mom's fault, but it's all of those little pieces in that healthcare um, provision, I guess you could say, between the doctors, the nurses, and everybody in the hospital and post-discharge who sees the baby and kind of assigns blame to the mother breaking down her confidence in her own body. Um, I really, truly suggest that moms see a lactation consultant very soon after birth. Uh, Once the milk is in, you can do pre- and post-feed test weights, and then you can truly, truly ascertain whether or not your baby's not taking enough milk in. Uh, There are higher cases nowadays of lower milk supply, but it's still not huge. I mean, maybe 5% of women. And because of all the toxins we have in our environment and the chemicals that we have and the pesticides and the plastics and all of that, it is changing the structure of our hormones and changing the structure of our breast development in our early development phase um, as preteens and teenagers. So there is a small percentage of women who truly do not have the supporting hormones or mammary tissue to produce milk. And I do see it um, often, but I would say a good 50 to 60% of the women who have a quote-unquote low milk supply, it's just a perception of a low milk supply and nothing more. But unfortunately, the extra supplementation of formula will lead to the true diminishment of that milk supply. So great question, Sarah. I love this question. I hope moms, as they're pregnant, hear this and, and do something to have that backup plan with a lactation consultant once they've delivered soon thereafter so that they can have that follow-up care if they feel that something may not be going the way that they want it to. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So today we're talking about how to talk to your pediatrician about breastfeeding. Our expert, Dr. Jenny Thomas, is a pediatrician and breastfeeding medicine specialist at Lakeshore Medical Clinic in Franklin, Wisconsin, and is a clinical assistant professor of community and family medicine and pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She is also one of the only one of only a few pediatricians internationally to be recognized as a fellow of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine for her expertise on breastfeeding, and she's also the author of Dr. Jenny. Guide to Breastfeeding. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jen. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Sure. So Dr. Jen, what is the average amount of training that a pediatrician gets on the topic of breastfeeding and and what inspired you to take it so much further? Um, The average amount, I think, really uh, is dependent on when you actually trained. So when I was in my residency about 20 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of breastfeeding information that was out there. Um, the more recent graduates are getting the benefit of more and more teaching uh, 
in their pediatric or family medicine residencies because I think we're working much harder at, at helping um, this generation of doctors coming out to know more about breastfeeding. But when I uh, decided to go into general practice, I had I had wanted to be a uh, ICU doc my whole uh, career and tried to skip general pediatric electives if I could. Um, I ended up, uh, through twist of fate and time, being a general pediatrician, and I went to go uh, get some education on general pediatric topics, and one of them offered was a wonderful series of lectures on breastfeeding by Dr. Nancy White. And as I sat in the audience, I thought to myself, why, why does she know this and I don't? <laughs> so I went back to my uh, home hospital after that trip and talked to um, the lactation consultant that worked there, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. So. Ah, that's so fantastic. That's so funny because Nancy White is here in San Diego with us. <laughs> right, exactly. I thought, yeah, very nice, uh, very nice location and timing. Absolutely. Well, what tips do you have for talking with a pediatrician about the desire to supplement with donor milk rather than formula? It's a, I, is that question sort of supposing that the decision to supplement has already been made? Yes. Because there are so many reasons that we supplement that don't really need to be a reason to supplement. So... If we're talking about supplementing with donor milk in the NICU, that's one of the things that we sort of hope are already occurring. If this is, if we're discussing about uh, using donor milk uh, for any other reason, there's there's a wide variety of ways that you can bring that up. One of the things that doctors do is get sort of stuck into an algorithm. And uh, or a regular way of doing things. And one of the best things that I can tell moms to do is just to ask the question, to sort of pop us out of what we think is our regular way of approaching problems and to sit down and seriously consider alternative avenues of proceeding. We get very used to saying, okay, this child comes in and these things fit a ear infection or these things fit dehydration or these things fit something and we know what we're supposed to do. But I find it very compelling when my patients make me slow down and sort of think and have to answer a question um, that's different than what I expected to um, to be asked. And just being able to engage in that conversation I think is wonderful. Um, hopefully most moms have found a, a provider that they can have that discussion with and if you haven't found a provider that you can have that discussion with, then maybe you should find somebody who's a better fit. That's a really good point. Um, and that also kind of leads into my next question, too. You know, if we see a lot of moms had a long labor, lots of fluids, it can often inflate a baby's birth weight. And so how can a parent negotiate the need for supplementation if baby's weight drops rapidly in those first few days due to possibly due to the shedding of all that fluid during labor? Yeah, I think there's enough um, uh, studies out there right now to prove that that is indeed the case, that, that IV fluids are an independent risk factor for weight loss. I have often asked, if I asked you to lose 10% of your weight in the next three days, how would you do it? I mean, would you get on a treadmill for three days? Would you hope that you had a really bad bout of gastroenteritis? Would you 
poop and puke on a treadmill. I mean, how would you lose 10% of your weight? So amputate something? <laughs> it's not really physiologically possible unless we're dealing with something like diuresis. And, and so if we can point out to the provider that the first day was 8%, and then now day two and day three afterwards, now you've seen a really, uh, uh, that whole progression of weight loss slow down a lot. Um, that maybe um, we could talk to that provider about about diuresis or just saying, you know, I think that first 24 hours really was a lot of uh, fluid loss, and now it's not so much. See, he's pooping, he's doing great, I'm not having any problems with the lats. That's a great bit of advice. Um, and one last question before we open this up to our panelists as well. Um, sometimes when a family is supplementing due to um, maybe baby not gaining weight as quickly back up to their birth weight and things like that, sometimes the recommendation is just to give the baby as much in a bottle as he or she will take because of the belief that sometimes babies won't overeat. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I sure think they will overeat. That's why we have so many kids barfing in the hospital when they need to get supplemented for things like, you know, artificially uh, inflated birth weights and then a lot of fluid loss afterwards. I don't think that they self-regulate early, that they're at the mercy sort of at the flow of the bottle. Um, We didn't actually start burping our kids until we started bottle feeding because they (laughs) don't have control over the flow. Um, And so just Picking a random number out of the air as to what to supplement a baby with is not um, the best idea. Okay. Ladies, did you have to discuss supplementation with the, with your pediatrician at all um, when you had your kids? Shannon, you're um, nodding your head. I did. My daughter had a little bit of jaundice when she was born. Not too much, but just enough that her pediatrician recommended doing formula because he thought that it would get it out of her system quicker. Uh, we ended up not doing formula. We kept nursing. We found out that he was not the right fit for our family. Okay. And so how did you get the jaundice out then? Uh, she just nursed, and <laughs> after a few days, she was looking beautiful again. Okay. <laughs> the yellowness tended to go away. Yes. I find jaundice another very interesting topic because it is a physiologic adaptation to being born. It's, the jaundice itself is an antioxidant, and it's supposed to, every baby is supposed to turn yellow just a little bit after um, delivery. We turned it into the disease in the 19th. 50s. And ever since, we've been sort of fighting our way back to, to seeing it as normal physiology. Um, so when I hear that my baby had jaundice or caught jaundice or was jaundice, I'm like, right, because you're human. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I think the main thing, too, is that you were keeping on track of how things were going as well. So it, it didn't turn to the one where it ends up becoming a medical issue, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Jen, there's been a trend lately in San Diego where um, our practitioners have been recommending solids starting at four months. Um, can you explain why the American Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines for exclusive breastfeeding until six months has now been kind of modified to starting solids at four months? And why are so many doctors so keen on rice cereal? Um, I don't think many providers really switched to the to the six month recommendation. I think that that's been a battle for quite some time. 
um, even within the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, there was some uh, uh, discussion between the Committee on Nutrition and the section on breastfeeding about whether four to six months was going to be um, agreed upon. It is the AAP's position that it's exclusive breastfeeding for, for six months, but because there's been a lot of confusion on there, I, I'm not sure that the the, the um, average pediatrician knew what to do. I think what has been driving uh, infant feeding practices in the United States has been the infant food companies, and they are still the um, marketing to uh, parents to start at four months. Um, we know that kids who are exclusively breastfed for six months are less ill, uh, have much less infection than kids who are exclusively breastfed for four months within the introduction of complementary foods at four months. So that exclusivity is um, really important for infectious disease. The idea for rice cereal is just a tradition, and it's really one that needs to go away in a huge way, driven by the again, by the baby food companies, and a lot of really powerful mythology that somehow a starch can make your baby sleep better. We are, we're working hard to, to have kids exclusively breastfeed for six months and then start off with really powerful, um, good food instead of the rice cereal. I'm a big advocate for baby-led weaning, um, baby-led solids, and I just think that that's... Um, best way to go. What are your favorite top foods to start with? Um, I like um, avocados, sweet potatoes, bananas. Um, I like things that you can smush and give to the kids and let them work on their fine motor skills and and experience texture and then at the same time sort of learn to feed themselves. Awesome. And how can a parent respond when her practitioner doesn't believe that breast milk has nutritional value after one year and that she should start to wean and, and offer that cow dairy instead? <laughs> well, you're talking to somebody sitting in Wisconsin. So. <laughs> I, I'll, be, I'll be pulled out of the state by my hair. Um, <laughs> but I'm always uh, amazed that there is, like, this this feeling that uh, your breast milk turns to water and that somehow there's another mammal out there making better (laughs) milk for a human than a human does. But I think that I respond by giving T-shirts at a year. So if somebody makes it for an entire year of breastfeeding, we have a small little party that ends with me giving a T-shirt to the baby. And I find it to be a great... Uh, transition to talk about how important it is to continue nursing after a year. But I do think a simple negotiation with your with your primary doctor that says that you want to continue to give human milk to your human baby, I think makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think when you state it in that way as well, it makes it, it kind of hits it home in a nice way too, that human right. milk for human babies. <laughs> human milk for human babies. Exactly. Now that you're going to go pick out a cow that looks like it's going to be able to make better <laughs> milk for you. <laughs> All right, ladies in the studio, have you discussed with your pediatrician his or her recommendation for how long you should breastfeed, and and what was his or her response? How about you, Melissa? I 
I think it's really important to decide on your breastfeeding goals before you ever see your pediatrician. Somewhere in your pregnancy, perhaps, then I've had the luxury of, of utilizing a midwife. So I think we talked about some of those goals be- before I even saw a pediatrician. So if the pe- pediatrician were to try to sway me, um, I already have my goal set, and I'm working on that goal before I really even hear what it is that they say or respond with. Okay. So that helped me. That That's absolutely helpful. How about you, Samantha? I really love your answer for that, actually. That's a really great way of looking at it. Um, luckily, my pediatrician has been really great. We actually haven't really had the discussion, to be perfectly honest. I nurse Olivia during every appointment at one time or another, whether she's getting her vaccinations or we're just sitting there. So she knows that I'm still breastfeeding, obviously. And I'm going to take her not saying anything as support. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she hasn't said, well, are you going to keep doing that? Or do you know that... You know, it's not giving her X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to take that as support. All right. That sounds good. How about you, Shannon? I, I also haven't had that conversation with my uh, pediatrician. He was advocating starting solids at four months. So I've just kind of taken nursing on as my own thing. I, I uh, sort of feel like it's not something I need to discuss with him kind of at this point. Okay. Yeah. How, um, MJ, we have a virtual panelist who wants to chime in. Yeah. Ashley Williamson says that her pediatrician told her, I will never tell you not to breastfeed. I'll never tell you to wean. And she says that was the best thing ever. She also um, said that her, her pediatrician said for her to put breast milk in her daughter's eye to cure an infection. So awesome. there <laughs> are some <laughs> supportive ones out there. That's fantastic. Yes. All right. Well, when we come back, Dr. Jen will discuss uh, dealing with sleep recommendations that may not support breastfeeding, as well as what to do if your pediatrician doesn't agree that tongue ties affect breastfeeding. So we'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the show. We are chatting with Dr. Jen Thomas about how to talk with your pediatrician about different breastfeeding topics. So Dr. Jen, how can a parent respond to the comment that a baby shouldn't be nursing throughout the night once he or she hits a few months old? Well, I think there's a a couple of different ways to approach that. I think the first pretty logical uh, way to approach it is to say why. Yeah. (laughs) to, To find out what the motivation is to say that the baby's shouldn't be nursing through the night because we know that that's physiologically normal. Um, but we have a lot of, of ideas, 21st century ideas that we're putting on babies that don't know and didn't consent to those 21st century ideas. And so it's, it's important that we understand where the provider is coming from and that you are able to express yourself in terms of what your goals are. And I think, you know, that kind of leads into my next question. Sometimes doctors will say that a mom shouldn't nurse her baby to sleep or throughout the night because it can cause bad sleep habits. So this is a baby who's going to want to nurse until they go to college or need to be rocked until they go to college, which actually I would, I I still rock my (laughs) (laughs) seven-year-old. You know, I had a colleague once say that the only way that she could get the mothers in her practice um, to stop breastfeeding their babies at night was to say that there was going to be a four-year-old that was in their bed at night. And I thought, oh, that's not so bad. I sort of liked having my four-year-old <laughs> in my bed. And if I didn't like having my four-year-old in my bed, that four-year-old was fucking. Yeah. <laughs> I could say, go back to bed. Yeah. Um, I, I find all of those things to be very frustrating 
pieces of advice. I think our parents find them frustrating as well. Um, <laughs> um, ladies, have you been given any sleep advice um, from practitioners or something that maybe you didn't necessarily agree with that you questioned, and how did you handle it? Shannon, how um, about you? For me, my daughter's 10 months old, so I'm being told you know, that she no longer needs that night nursing session. Um, I disagree. I think she does. I need it too. I like the closeness. Um, I'm working out of the house five days a week, I treasure those moments at night with her. You know, it's just wonderful just to have that bonding time with her, just the two of us snuggled up close together. I love it. She loves it. It's working for us, so I'm not changing it anytime soon. I think the point that you brought up, too, that it's working for you, I think, is a key component as well, because... Obviously, people look for changes when it's not working for them and seek it out. But if it's working, you want to just keep doing what you're doing. So how about you, Melissa? I felt, well, I, I, I nursed all three of, uh, you know, two of my boys and now third, but until um, three. And so one of the things I learned by my breastfeeding relationship is what works for both of us, but also that breastfeeding at night wasn't just for nutrition. Sometimes if they were teething or uncomfortable or not feeling good. And I always liked that I had an answer that always seemed to work. You know, that made me really happy. So it didn't bother me. And um, I have the advantage of, of being able to have my boys in my bed with me. And I think sometimes that makes it easier than having to get up out of bed and go somewhere else. So I always say that as a caveat, you know, that it was, it was pretty easy for me to breastfeed my boys at night. Yeah. So. Okay, cool. How about you, Samantha? Oh, go ahead, Dr. Jen. I I think that the, the piece of advice where you're told that you shouldn't be nursing at night anymore really is in conflict with a lot of mother's experiences. And I think what you're saying there is very important that, you know, you had something that was always going to work. And when someone is asked to change their way of parenting simply because of some unknown outcome in the future, I, I, don't, I don't think it makes much sense. I, I think it makes sense to do the thing that works best for your family. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Samantha, what were you going to add? So I had a certified <clears throat> nurse practitioner at our pediatrician ask when Olivia was probably 10 months old, asking where she slept. And I said, oh, she sleeps with us. She asked, well, is she sleeping through the night? I said, no, she's still nursing. She was like, whoa, you better get that in check. Um, <laughs> and you know what? For the time it was working for us, I have no problems. Now at 17 months where she's still waking up, four or five times a night. Now I think I'm in a position where it's not coming from anybody else. It's coming from myself Mm -hmm. that now is a time where maybe we need to transition out of that. And I'm okay with that decision because it came from me and not, you know, a pediatrician. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, another thing that my kids are a little bit older and so they, they sleep in their own rooms and stuff like that. But I think Melissa, you brought up a good point. Like one of them had a stomach bug like a couple weeks ago. And so I didn't want him sleeping in his own room for me to have to get up every couple hours and rush in there and freak out. Like, I'd rather him in bed with me. And plus, I mean, I even think I'm almost 38 years old. And when I don't feel well, I call my mom to have her come and take care of me. <laughs> so it's like, it, you know, going along with all that, like what feels right to you until until it's not working. And then it, it makes it feel so much better when it's kind of like, well, we need to make this change because I want to. Right, exactly. Right. 
Yeah. MJ, yeah. do we have a virtual panelist as well? We do. And also, I wanted to add, mm-hmm. too, with my pediatrician, um, you know, I wasn't going in saying, I'm, I can't get enough sleep. I can't, yeah. you know, like, that's the thing is we're not asking for it. They're yeah. just giving it to us. So it's kind of odd that way. But that's the way, like, Leslie Thomas Sanders, she said, I just nodded my head, smiled, and went about my business. <laughs> and then another one was Emma Wade. She says uh, that hers recommended crying it out at nine months, and she ignored him. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, Dr. Jen, what if a pediatrician doesn't believe that tongue ties or lip ties negatively impact breastfeeding or even exist for that matter? We're far from consensus on this. Yeah. Um, there are clearly some tongue ties that make a huge difference, and then there's a lot of debates surrounding um, the whole idea of tongue tie and lip tie. So we are in a really exciting um, time of uh, research and understanding and um, trying to figure out what is the best way to approach uh, a child with a tongue tie. Um, there's there's no way that uh, a practitioner can say that it doesn't make any difference because it certainly does make a difference to that mom who's in pain and that baby that can't um, sustain a good latch. Uh, one of the things that is important to know is that you can seek out uh, an opinion from an ENT uh, or other qualified um, practitioner as long as you have a referral from somebody who's appropriate. So if you have a lactation consultant that says, I think that your baby needs to go see a near nose and throat doctor, a lot of times you can bypass your um, primary if they don't think it's an issue. Okay. And um, we've had a couple, unfortunately, not just in San Diego, but I've heard it um, from other moms as well in other places that, you know, a pediatrician has said, well, you can get the procedure done, but there's a 50% chance that it will help. And 50, and I don't know where they get these numbers from. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Exactly. There, we're, we're in a, a time of a very interesting um, debate and research and really numbers like that don't exist. Yeah, we, we don't, don't we don't have any of those numbers. Absolutely. So do you have a recommendation for if if a mom is actually seeking out to maybe go to an ENT, but she's also feeling kind of nervous because her pediatrician is someone that she trusts. And this is a person who's saying it may not, you know, it well, there's a good chance it's not going to help anyway. Any ways to get the mom to feel more confident to maybe get a second opinion? You are still you are still the 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 customer, the client. You are or it's the one paying us for the services. So if you have a question about the services that you're being, that you're paying for, then absolutely go advocate for your child. Go ask for a second opinion. Um, this is not the 1950s where we get to dictate what happened. This is a this is a time of relationship and 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 empowerment for families. So I would I would do what was necessary to make sure that I was doing the right thing for my child. Okay. And then the million-dollar question of the day, is it normal for babies to poop only once a week, Dr. Jen? (laughs) (laughs) It depends on how old that baby is. It's it's an emergency if they're only pooping once a week in their first couple weeks of life. Sure. They're not transferring any milk. But if they get to being two, three months old and they and they stool once a week, that is consistent with the recipe of, of breast milk. The main non 
digestible component of breast milk is uh, the oligosaccharides, which are very, very prevalent in the recipe for breast milk in the first several weeks, but go down at a different rate for every woman, it sounds like, um, from the research. And as those oligosaccharides uh, leave the, the recipe, the stool output can decrease because oligosaccharides drive the stool output in the in the initial days of, of breastfeeding. Okay. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jen, and to our incredible panelists for discussing this very important topic. And for our Boob Group Club members, our conversation will continue after the end of this show as Dr. Jen will discuss her recommendations for iron supplementation for the exclusively breastfed baby. For more information about our Boob Group Club, please visit our website at theboobgroup.com. Hi, Boob Group listeners. I'm Wendy Wright, an internationally board-certified lactation consultant and owner of Lactation Navigation in Palo Alto, California. I'm here to answer some of your most common questions about returning to work as a breastfeeding mother. One of the questions we routinely receive is, what will I need from my employer so I can return to work while breastfeeding? This is a great question and very, very important to discuss with your employer, if at all possible, before leaving for maternity leave. There are three items that your employer can provide that would be extremely helpful for your breastfeeding career. The first is a private space. This is preferably a room with good lighting, an electrical outlet, and a comfortable chair. This could be an office, a conference room, or even a large supply closet. The only provision that is mentioned in the law is that this is not a bathroom. So any other room within your building that you would feel safe and secure, clean, well-lit, will be great for breastfeeding and pumping while at work. The other item that your employer should provide is flexible break time to use for pumping. The first few months back at work, you will need to pump approximately every three hours. That looks like two breaks, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, plus pumping on your lunch hour. This is a great way to maintain your breast milk supply, to make yourself feel comfortable during the day, and to provide enough milk for your infant for the following day before your infant starts solids. The last item that your employer can provide so that you can return to work easily while breastfeeding is a supportive company policy. Oftentimes, this is overlooked. However, it's not simply enough to have an agreement between the HR individuals and the employee who is pumping at work. It's an excellent idea to have a company policy so that other employees are entitled to the same rights, so that managers and supervisors and peers all know what to expect, and so that your rights are protected. Sample policies can be found on my website at www. Dot lactationnav.com. Thanks so much for listening today. Visit the website for more information about my business, Lactation Navigation, and be sure to listen to the Boob Group for fantastic conversations about breastfeeding and breastfeeding support. This wraps up our show for today. We appreciate you listening to the Boob Group. Don't forget to check out our sister shows, Preggy Pals for Expecting Parents, Parent Savers for Moms and Dads with Newborns, Infants, and Toddlers, and our brand new show, Twin Talks, for parents of multiples. Thanks for listening to The Boob Group, your judgment-free breastfeeding resource. This has been a new Mommy Media production.
The information and material contained in this episode are presented for educational purposes only. Statements and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of New Mommy Media and should not be considered facts. While such information and materials are believed to be accurate, it is not intended to replace or substitute for professional medical advice or care and should not be used for diagnosing or treating health care problem or disease or prescribing any medication. If you have questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your baby, please seek assistance from a qualified health care provider. New Mommy Media is expanding our lineup of shows for new and expecting parents. If you have an idea for a new series, or if you're a business or organization interested in joining our network of shows through a co-branded podcast, visit newmommymedia.com. Hey, mamas. Don't forget to check out Mighty Moms. It's our online community built for new moms just like you. Not only can you connect with other moms, but you can also join us backstage for special mom-only online events. And you'll also be notified when we're recording so you can join us as a special guest. Visit our website, newmommymedia.com, and click on the Mighty Moms banner. It's free. That's newmommymedia.com. See you there.